Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Glad to be here. I miss seeing y'all. Uh, we're going to get right into the scripture. We do have a, a meeting after church, so I don't want to keep you a long time. I don't want all the white meat to be gone either. Okay, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open, or we're just going to read here. Uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's comparable to the fact that every person we've lost, uh, we haven't lost them because we know where they're located, but every person that's died in the Lord, the images hear that they're in the grandstands, and they're watching us. Just like we go to watch the Sooners or the Cowboys, they're watching us. And they're encouraging us because they know that uh, soon and very soon we'll all be together, right? Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And this is the part we're going to emphasize today. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, you're going to have to go back because I'm a speed reader, but I was hooked on, first thing I was hooked on was phonics. So anyway, remember, so let us fix our eyes on, <laughs> hey, I appreciate y'all so much too helping us. So fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse three is a great encouragement to us. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So in this passage, the writer of Hebrews compares our Christian life to a race, right? So there are those that have finished their race. Paul said, I finished my course. And so they're in the grandstands in heaven. And that's just a metaphor, of course. They're with the Lord right this moment, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And they're encouraging us because we're running a race down here and they understand the difficulty of this race. And there's two things I want to talk to you about today, mainly the second one, but I'm just going to mention the first one in passing. The first thing in this race is we have to throw off everything that would hold us back, the weights of life. You know, it wouldn't have made any difference when I ran in high school, what I had on me, I was, going to, I was the only person in Kiowa that ever ran track that they time with the calendar. So anyway, now Frankie, my, her coach told me one time she was the fastest girl he ever coached. So Frankie, I could never chase her when we were dating. I couldn't catch her, so I ambushed her. Okay, and by the way, the first day of June, that'll be 50 years ago. Isn't that great? We just got a little, we just got a little while. The most crucial years of marriage are the first 50, and we're just about there. So anyway, so we have this race set before us, and we have to throw off these entanglements. Now, these things that hold us back, are, they're called besetting, are besetting sin. They're something that we deal with constantly. I heard somebody describe this one time. It's like a, the rubber ball on the wooden paddle, that it just it always comes back. It's a besetting thing. Now, I can probably identify yours easier than I can mine. Because uh, C.S. Lewis said we're awful good at confessing other people's sins, right? But we all have a besetting sin, something we deal with. It can be rejection. It can be pride. It can be addictions. It can be things in our life. We, we all deal with these things. You know, they told the story about 20 years ago about three preachers got together and they decided to have a share group every week because nobody understood a preacher. So one day they were out and they were fishing and they were in the boat 
One of the preachers said, man, I'm just going to be vulnerable. He said, there's nobody to confess our sins to. He said, if the church knew what we did, they'd fire every one of us. He said, I'll be first. He said, I'll just be honest. Sometimes I know where the offering, the offering plate is, and I'll just go buy and abscond a handful of money and put it in my pocket. So the second preacher said, okay, I'll be next. My besetting sin and weakness is that every year I had 25,000 miles to my car allowance. 25,000 miles. said, I'd just cheat the government every year. Whatever. If I drove a million miles, I'm going to put a million and 25,000 miles. So the other one was real quiet, and he was real reluctant. And they said, uh, what's your besetting sin? He said, uh, gossip. <laughs> and I can't hardly wait to get back to town. <laughs> so the truth is this. Each of us has a besetting sin. So we, we have to put that aside. You know, I love, uh, one of my favorite preachers always says this. When you find your besetting sin, admit it, quit it, and forget it. Now, we say that's awful hard to do. That's why it's besetting. But with God's grace, we've sung about God's grace today. With God's grace, we can admit it, quit it, and forget it. Paul said we can lay behind the things. But the second part of this race is the fixation or your focus. Your focus becomes your future. And that's why he said we have to fix our eyes. And I don't want to be real technical, but I'm going to talk to you about this word in a minute. Because it's a fact in life that we move in the direction that we're focusing in, in life. Your focus becomes your direction. What you see or what you're seeing is what you'll become. Now, there's a scriptural pattern for this over in Numbers 13, verse 33. The children of Israel saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, that came from the giants. Now listen to what it says. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So what you see in your heart, your spirit, your perception of who you are becomes who you are, right? You know, there was a guy named Maslow. Y'all probably had to study about Maslow. He was a, a plastic surgeon as well as a counselor. So he decided that he would start fixing people's maladies like, you know, bad nose, you know, things like that. And he discovered something as a plastic surgeon that no matter what he did to improve people's physical appearance, it never changed their internal perception of themselves. I know people that weigh 125 pounds that are fat in their eyes, and they just can't seem to lose enough weight or get away, and we, you know, these are things that are true. But let me tell you today, we have physical sight, and we have spiritual sight. Proverbs 20, verse 12 says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. Ephesians 1.18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart or your spirit may be enlightened. We have internal sight. And this is what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about we go out and we drive and we look to heaven everywhere we go, fixing our eyes on Jesus. But he's talking about the fixation of our heart, where our hearts are single and our mind, the mind of our spirit, is set on the things of God. And that's our challenge. Jesus had single vision. In John 5.19, he said, The Son can do nothing by Himself. Now listen to this. He can only do what He sees the Father doing. So Jesus had singular vision because in Matthew 6.22, He says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. So we can't have double vision. We can't love the world and love God a little bit. We can't love things and... It's, it's the battle of life. It's the fixation of our heart on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
looking ever to Jesus. We have to lay aside these weights, these entanglements that confront us. Some of them may even come to us through ancestral problems. We have to face those things. We have to admit it, we have to quit it, and we have to walk every day in trying to forget it. But we also have internal focus. So in our world, it's kind of hard. You know, I always heard somebody say recently, it's a culture of vertigo. We're just spinning everywhere, right? You can get six Americans together and have 12 opinions. Uh, we can't make our mind up. Nobody's satisfied. And Jesus said, there's one thing we have to seek in this focus is the kingdom of God. The rule of God in our own heart. That's where the kingdom really is, is the rule of God in our own heart. You know, they asked Howard Hughes one time, we live in a world of, uh, you know, just more and more and more. They asked Howard Hughes one time, when would enough be enough? I love his reply. I don't know, but it'd be a little more. And that was, uh, that's the way, that's the culture we live in. I'll talk about that again in a minute. Now, let me give you this word, this word fix. It's the word aphoreo. I, hate, I don't want to be technical, but it's a, a very important word. And this is what this word fix means. It means to look away from something in order to see something else and to change your gaze from this to what you found. It's a very powerful word. So what, Peter, or what, what uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying to us is we have to come to the place in our life we practice looking away from the things that would distract us from the real gaze of life, which is Jesus, right? I mean, there's a lot of distractions. We have to learn to concentrate, or this word means to gaze, or to look steadfastly and intently at something. Now, there's a biblical pattern. Don't y'all love the Don't you love Peter? He's my favorite apostle because he reminds me of me. Always talking and never listening. Andrew Young, they said one time, said the apostle Peter was the only man he knew that could get not only his foot, but both hands and his gloves in his mouth. I'm not going to challenge Larry Lee because I don't have time to do this, but Larry Lee says that Peter made 50 statements before Pentecost in the Bible and 47 of them were wrong. That reminds me of me. So He was always making an observation that was wrong. But after Pentecost, we know he, uh, Peter the dishrag became Peter the rock, right? But Peter learned a great lesson about focus. We give him a hard time. But I want you to listen to this scripture. It's found over in Matthew 14, 29. Now, remember they're out, they're out in a boat, the disciples are, tumultuous storm going on, looks like they're going to die. And they're looking for whomever they can find to help them out of this storm. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And in verse 29, he said, Come. And Peter had come out of the boat. Now listen to this part. He, Peter, walked on the water. Ah, Peter, you know, he's always messing. No, that dude walked on the water. He walked on the water. And he's walking on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. It was about the fixation of his heart. He saw Jesus. He walked on the water. But then he started looking circumstantially, the things around us. Now, I'm going to talk about three of these today. 
that we have to look away from in order to really look to the Lord. So life is this. We see Jesus, we obey Him, we do exploits. Then an obstacle or a wind comes in our life and all of a sudden we're looking at that problem and we don't stay on the top of the water. Has anybody ever had any trouble with sinking? I'm pretty good at that. Somebody asked me the other day, he said, James, what is your greatest anointing, you think? I said, oh, that's easy. I'm going to tell you how not to do it. <laughs> but listen to Matthew 14, 32. And when they got, now this is after he stretches his hand out, Jesus takes him by the hand. Jesus didn't say, I'll just go ahead and drown. You know, I tried to tell you. To... The word come, by the way, is imperative. It's a command. Peter didn't have a choice. It's like, get over here. That's how we'd say it. So he comes. So Matthew 14, 32 says, And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. So Jesus helped him back to the boat. So undoubtedly, he walked on the water, sank, got back, walked back on the water, and got back to the boat. Right? So when we get to heaven and we're so critical of him, we can, he, he might ask you, have you ever walked on water? Without knowing where the rocks are, by the way. So Now, I'm going to talk to you this morning. We're talking about putting our gaze on Jesus. And looking at this word, that means to look away from one thing in order to see what is real. We have to look away from, from some things in our life in order to focus on Jesus. And the first thing is the opinions of other people. I don't know what the key to success is always, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody. And I have a question. Who is they? They're always saying something, right? But we can't ever find who they is, right? And sometimes, I wish I didn't have to say this, but Jesus experienced this, the opinion of others, the thing you have to overcome. It can't even be your family's opinion. Now, Jesus is out here, just saw a man delivered from demonic spirits, saw a withered hand healed. And in Mark 3.21, by the way, I got a little extra for you. You know why I know the Bible is divine, God-inspired? Because if man would have written this book, they'd left some of these stories out. We'd have left David plumb out of there, wouldn't we? That dude, he had a heart after God and was such a scoundrel. But listen to Mark 3.21. But when his own people, one translation says his family, heard about this, heard about him ministering and all the things that were happening, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. Now I want to tell you something. I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but when you focus on Jesus and start doing what your heart is leading you to do, sometimes you'll be associated and classified with those who are crazy. You're going to sell all you have and give it to the poor. You're going to quit that successful job and go into the ministry. You're going to go to China. Those are things that just really, you know... Uh, one time at ORU, I had to take the Minnesota multiphasic exam, which there's a question there, have you ever heard a voice outside of yourself? And our, the professor that gave it to us, Dr. Daniel Hedges, said, guys, you're going to get a bad report on this, hopefully. If you're a man or woman of God and you've never heard anything outside of yourself, you're in trouble. <laughs> if you've never heard of the voice of God, something outside of yourself, and you're in the ministry, you're in trouble. So go ahead and just put yes, you have, and it'll come back that you're really messed up. But the point is this, uh, 
we have to learn that and prepare ourselves for if we're going to look away. Sometimes we have to look away from relational things that would hold us back from doing the will of God. It's the story of Jesus. doesn't mean we're mean to our family or anything. It just means sometimes that opposition comes that way. Jack Hayford, uh, who is the head of uh, King's, uh, King's College and uh, has had a very successful ministry of church in California called Church on the Way, who got his reputation one day. They were out passing out tracts on a Sunday morning instead of going to church. And the whole big crowd of Church on the Move was out on the beach passing out tracts, and people looked over them, and they had clouds following them wherever they went. So it made quite an impact on the community. They didn't have any sun on them. And uh, that's kind of how, you know, that makes people come up next Sunday to see what's going on. You know, the crazy bunch that had the, the glory cloud of God over them while they were passing out tracks. Let's go down and check them out. You know, I bet they're crazy, but let's go just so we can. We already got our mind made up. Let's go and check it out. So anyway, when Jack Hayford was a senior in high school at 17, his English teacher came in and said, Jackie, what are you going to do, honey? You can do anything. You, you're going to score so well on your SAT, and you're just going to, you'll be able to be a doctor, a lawyer, anything you want. He said, Miss So-and-so, I'm going to be a preacher. She said, oh, dear God, Jackie, don't waste your mind and your energy on that occupation. Be a doctor or a lawyer. And he said, no, I'm going to be a preacher. And she said, Jackie, you're just going to waste your life. And uh, by the way, he is very bright. And, uh, doesn't mean that the other things are bad. It just simply means that the calling of God is what you have to do. And his greatest opposition came from somebody that thought they were helping him. And he had to fight through that mentally. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't do this. You know, when Lester Sumrall decided that he heard that inner voice say, go to China, he just loaded up and he had a stop in San Francisco on the way to China. And an older preacher allowed him to preach one Wednesday night. And after the service, he said, Lester Sumrall, and by the way, he, they, they on that Lassie Broadcasting Network, still have that huge church in the Philippines from that little girl that was delivered from a demon spirit by Lester Sumrall's ministry that had that nobody, that, uh, matter of fact, when she was delivered, the mayor ran in and said, Mr. Summerall, the devil's dead. <laughs> they were so excited. And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, and he administered to her and the spirit of darkness had left her. And he said, well, what, what can I do for you, Mr. Summerall? He said, you know, right across from where the prison is, where we were ministering, that girl said, yeah, I said, I'd like to have a tent revival over there. He said, you got it. He said, would you write that down, uh, mayor? I read a lot better than I hear. And he wrote him a mandate, and they had that great revival with over 100,000 people saved in Manila and started a church out of it. So when he decided he was going to go, it's still there. When he decided he was going to go to China, the pastor that let him preach on the Wednesday night said, Oh, I tell you, Lester, I'm really concerned. He said, What are you concerned about? He said, You're going to China. He said, Well, the Lord told me in my heart, I feel I've been fixing my eyes on the Lord and praying. I feel God told me to go to China. Because the hearing ear, you know, we read that scripture over in Proverbs, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord makes them both. And you know what the preacher said? He said, all right, go ahead and go. Go over there and starve to death. And Lester Summerall stopped him. He said, hey, brother, would you do me a favor? He said, well, yeah, I'll do you. I, I love you, Lester. What can I do for you? He said, when I starve to death in China, would you have them to bring me back here to San Francisco and bury me? And put on my tombstone, here lies Lester Summerall, starved to death while trusting Jesus. And the preacher said, I ain't going to do that because I know, he said, I know you won't have to. 
So that was his parting words with that pastor, but he thought he was loony, thought he had lost, went over there, did all those great things, has the ministry still going. That's, that's amazing. The second thing you have to overcome is overwhelming odds. You have to keep your fixation on Jesus even when everything around you is crumbling and falling apart because if you start looking at the boisterous things, the waves, the wind, it gets your focus off. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with things, but it simply means we gaze at Jesus and glance at our problems. If you start to focus on your problems, I've done this a million times, they just get bigger and bigger. And then your imagination kicks in. You know what your imagination is? That's something that hadn't happened that you think might have happened. Somebody's against you, and you find out that they just are the ones that blessed you. But in your mind, you imagine they were against you. You know, uh, overwhelming odds. No way. There's no way it's going to happen. I have a friend. Uh, I'm not going to mention his name because Ronald Reagan told me one time never to name drop. <laughs> That'll take a little while for you all to think about that one. But <clears throat> and. <laughs> Anyway, I have a friend that started a church, just a little small group of people, about 35 people. And God started moving, and all of a sudden it just became this huge thing. And he stuck in this little building with two or 3,000 people. No way, no way he can handle the people. And right in the middle of this, we're talking about obstacles and odds being against us, an old cowboy came up to him. Just an old, rough cowboy. He said, uh, Larry, he said, uh, you're a preacher, aren't you? And he said, yeah. He said, I've been over to your church a couple of times. He said, can I be honest with you? He said, yeah. He said, I don't like preachers at all. You know, the first time Paul Luxinger uh, saw me down at Sonny's, he told Susie, he said, who is that guy with that bouffant hairdo? Paul didn't care for me when he first saw me either. So anyway, I said, just moving right along. He's in heaven. We're not worried about that. You know, preachers used to have our bouffants or something that, you know, something that, that he said, I don't like preachers. Preachers are sissies. I hate preachers. But I do have something that internally I know I'm supposed to give you. He said, well, what is it? He brought in this, the ugliest boot, cowboy boot you've ever seen in your life. And he said, my ties for the last few years, every week when I make these big rodeo deals and make all this money, I've just stuffed them down in that boot. Said, Jesus, you can have everything in there for the church. Well, he, he won't divulge how much it was, but it was a substantial amount of money in that old, dirty, filthy cowboy boot. Probably leather, uh, probably elephant. Somebody gave me a pair of elephant boots one time. I tried to do everything to wear those things out. I even walked in concrete one time with them, and I, they, they will not wear out. So probably an old elephant boot. And then while he took the money out, he got this idea. He said, you know, we need, we need $1.4 million, Lord, to build this metal building that we need. We need it badly. So he got up the next Sunday morning. He said, you see this old cowboy boot up here? This represents how bad things are and the fact that we can't do this, but we're going to put this old cowboy boot up here. Sunday morning for the next four months when you come by and you have something you want to offer God, just come put it in the old cowboy boot. Now, true story. Four months later, $1.4 million plus dollars. Why? Because somebody was looking to Jesus. It's not about all that money stuff. It's about the fact that somebody heard God and he said, you know, my people thought I was crazy when I brought that ugly old cowboy boot out and set it on the stage. But it wasn't the cowboy boot. It was the fact that people looked away from their situations 
and put their focus on Jesus. We have to glance at our obstacles, right? And then the last thing is we not only have to look away from the opinions of others and the overwhelming odds that are against us, but we have to look away from the opposition of a culture. Did you know we're culturally opposed now? We really are. Back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, uh, uh, Larry Lumen used to do this with me quite a bit. We would uh, get together on like Thursday night and we'd just go out. We called it soul winning. You know, go out and visit with people. Saw some great things happen through that. Also saw some uh, doors closed. <laughs> but this is what we would do. We'd go out and say, you know, uh, Johnny May, have you come to the place in your life? You know if you died, you go to heaven. We had all these techniques. And, and Johnny May would say, I don't like church. I hate their, you know, and I did have a line about hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. I'd always say, well, watch the obituary column, and when one of them die, we'll save it for you. We'll save you that place. Anyway, move right along. That never did. That, that was when the door closed. <laughs> Not really. But anyway, then this would always be the key. They'd argue back and forth, and then somebody would say, well, the Bible says, and there would be almost like this, oh, the Bible, yeah. My grandma loved the Bible. I'm not messing with the Bible. And it would open a door sometimes. If you share some Scripture, people would reverence the Scripture. Now, I do all that to illustrate this point. People don't care anymore. There's no plumb line with a lot of people. Uh, there's no reference. We, and then it moved to the fact that Jesus said this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. Now, that's all in con contestation about how you get to heaven. And, and uh, Mark Rutland says, also, we've no normalized the defeated life. Well, we're just all messed up. We can't live it anyway. So that's just all, I mean, you know, I've, I mean, I'm being honest. We let our guards down. And Mark Rutland says, we've just normalized a defeated life. If you stand up somewhere and tell somebody you've overcome something, you're religious. Especially if you mention how you overcame. Anyway, not a negative thing, just a reality. If we're going to have to look away from that. We're going to have to look away from the cultural tendencies, from the diversity, from the pluralism, from all the things that come against our faith. We live kind of in a counterculture. They did a survey back in 2014 with evangelical Christians, and the question was asked, do you think a candidate's personal life should influence his political office? And 70% of evangelicals said yes. Not too long ago, they redid that survey, and it's 20%, because we have normalized the defeated life. I do that sometimes. These times, they are changing, y'all. And uh, we're called to live a life in a counterculture, the type that Jesus lived in, the counterculture he lived in, where the Pharisees had taken over, the Sadducees, where the Roman government was just uh, oppressive, where people would take their newborn children, break their arms and legs, tie them up, and then use them for begging instruments for the next 10, 12 years. He came into a bad culture. And the first thing he faced was the religious system of the time. And you know, uh, uh, I'll, I'll close with this. I did a, I did a funeral 
uh, two funerals last week. I did Judge Branham. Y'all remember Judge Branham? I did his mom's funeral at McAllister. I didn't even know he was there until it was over with, even though her name was Shote. But I did this other funeral for a 27-year-old boy who was with his friends last Friday night a week ago, and they asked him to take a pill, and he took a pill, well, laced with fentanyl, and killed him instantly, just about, 27 years old. So I had a real diversity of things going on. But I met with both families, one of the family members. One was not so adamant. But this is what, when I meet with families, I do, I don't know y'all. I mean, this is not, this is just the way it is. I probably do two funerals a week. When I meet with families, this is what they always say. Now, you're not going to go very long, are you? And I always say, no, blessed are the short-winded. They shall be heard again. You're not going to get into that getting us all saved stuff, are you? I hear this all the time. Well, no, I can't save you. But I didn't say I wouldn't get into some of that. I just say I can't save you, right? <laughs> and then there's always this, uh, the last thing is, they'll say it. It's almost like a system. They'll say, and we don't want any of that religious stuff either. So what I do is I get and I find out all I can about this individual, and I emphasize their life, and then at the end I say, oh, yeah, there's our faith. Let's talk about our faith for a while. And... With God's help, I'm able to insert the gospel and to do some things. It's not, hopefully I'm not compromising, but I found out when you talk about somebody's life, people are, they want that. But I hear it more and more and more. Uh, we don't want any of that religious stuff. And maybe it's just my world, but, you know, if, if the Bible Belt had a buckle, we'd be pretty close, wouldn't we? And it's just changing, I'm telling you. This world's changing, and it's... It's a pressure on us. We don't realize it, but it's a pressure. In Philippians 3, verse 20, Paul, living in a hard time, made this statement. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we're going to have to look. That's where we're going to have to fix our eyes, not physically, but to determine in our heart that we're going to keep our eyes on Jesus. We're going to run our race we're going to put off the things that hold us back. And then we're going to fix our eyes on the kingdom of God and the purpose of God for our life. God has a purpose for your life. That's so exciting. And the things that will keep us from the purpose of our life is gazing at counterproductive things in our life. Worrying about what people think. Worrying about where the culture's going. Worrying about if we're going to look crazy. Worrying about the obstacles of life. You know, an obstacle, you know what it really is? It's just an opportunity and work clothes. Opportunity to do something. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes in that, uh, in that battle, in that race, you have to assert yourself a little bit. You have to be bold. When I was in seminary down at Southwestern back, Noah graduated a year before I did. So anyway, but when I was down there, um, I had a professor named Dr. John Newport. He was probably the most brilliant man other than Dr. Howard Irvin at ORU that I'd ever listened to. And he talked about one time about how you have to fix your eyes on doing what God's told you to do and you'll always have opposition. And at, just before he'd come to Southwestern, he got stopped one time in Fort Worth for, uh, for driving 60 miles an hour in a 50-mile-an-hour zone. And he argued with the policeman. He said, I was not driving 60 miles an hour. He said, 
Dr. Newport, you were driving. He saw all of his credentials. You were driving 60 miles. He said, no, I know you're wrong. This is why you're wrong. I never read a book when I'm driving over 55. <laughs> so anyway, but he was talking about when he was at the First Baptist Church, Paris, Texas, he had a tormentor in his church. Every Sunday, he'd have a suggestion. You know, maybe you ought to try this, or maybe you ought to try that. Or Then it got into, you know, I think I, I think I could preach. I'd like to preach some Sunday at the First Baptist Church, Paris. And this guy was just, you know, nobody really knew much about him. So one day, he said, uh, I tried to be compassionate about it. I didn't want to be, you know, people come in and say, our preacher's full of the devil. You know, he said, I tried to be compassionate, tried to be reasonable. But I said, one day, he hit me wrong. He said, I walked in the back door of the church and he's right in my face on Sunday morning. He says, Dr. Newport, this is the Sunday. God just, this is the Sunday. I'm supposed to preach. And Dr. Newport said, okay, John, when did the Lord tell you you were supposed to preach? He said, it wasn't 10 minutes ago down at the McDonald's. He said, uh, John, don't worry about it, man. I just talked to the Lord not 30 seconds ago in my car and he told me to go ahead. <laughs> I've never forgotten that story about it. sometimes you just have to say, I'm not taking any pressure because that's manipulation, right? I'm just going to do what the fixation of my heart is. I'm going to do what God tells me to do because at the end of the day, that's who you're responsible for, is you. And people will lead you around. They'll manipulate you. Uh, I had a friend that was at Benita, Oklahoma one time, kind of oxymoron here, the same church in Vanita. But anyway, anyway, this, uh, lady, this lady stood up and gave this terrible word. It was just so contrary to God. And my friend leaned over to the pastor and he said, you think that was God? And he said, no. He said, well, maybe you need to say something about it. And he said, sister so-and-so, we've just talked about this and we just don't think that was of God. So just sit down and just relax. And about 30 seconds later, she stood up again. She said, thus saith the Lord, it was to me. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> you, have to, you have to watch all that manipulation stuff in life. Stay away from it. Do what God's told you to do. Even sometimes, I'll listen, I'm not talking about rebellion and stuff. I mean, your parents are your greatest counsel. They love you more than anybody. But I'm telling you, sometimes you have to go by what's in your heart because even people that love you, they don't want you to have to suffer or do without or do anything that would put you in a bind, right? Okay. Well, that's all I need to say today. Uh, I would like for us to pray together. So, how many of y'all would agree with me that we're going to lay aside our entangling sin? We're going, we're going to do our best to admit it, quit it, and forget it by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? We know what it is. Uh, we don't need anybody to tell us. Uh, now, how many of us would just say, you know, I have physical eyes, but I know these eyes that uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking about, it's a spiritual discernment. I'm going to start discerning God in my heart for my life, His will for my life. I'm not going to look at the obstacles, the opposition, or the counterculture, anything that's going on. I'm just going to start obeying God and uh, do what the Lord tells me to do. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. How many, we want to do that also, don't we? Will it be hard? You better believe it will be hard. Why? Because you're going to deal with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the wooden seas. And you're going to deal with the situations, but you have to do what's in your heart. So let me say a prayer for you, and I'm going to turn it over to Michael, okay? 
Father, we thank you very much this morning for Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him was obedient and endured even the death on the cross. How thankful we are for that, that he is our model. He is our paradigm of righteousness. He is the personification of Christianity. And I want to thank you today for this church. I thank you for your work in the midst of this church. Thank you that you placed them here strategically to be a blessing to this community. And I pray that you will empower them with everything they need to be everything you've called them to be. And we thank you again for the fact that we can fix the eyes of our heart on you. We can do your will. We can know what the will of the Lord is, and we can have the power of the Spirit to do it. And help us not to uh, self-condemn. Help us to learn to forget our mistakes and that have been put under the blood of Christ, that have been washed away. Help us to also be kind and compassionate to others who make mistakes and to realize that uh, if we judge, others will be judged. Help us to be people of your love and mercy. In this counterculture we live in that's looking for the real, may Christ in us be their hope of glory. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.